0: From NPR.
1: I'm Anoush Zamarodi stepping in for Guy Raz this week. Maybe you've heard one of my podcasts, Note to Self or Zigzag. I've also been a guest on this show. Thanks so much for having me. So, a couple years back, Olympia Della Flora had a job as a principal at an elementary school in Columbus, Ohio. And she had this one student there who was really not doing well.
2: Yeah, I, I spent a lot of time with this kid and uh, really got to know him on a
1: personal level. That's Olympia. As for the kid, we'll call him Dee. Can you tell me about him? Yeah, so when Dee came
2: to us, there were just some behaviors that we were not used to seeing and things that were abnormal. Like what? What would he do? He would do things like throw chairs, he would flip tables, Um, he would scream. Um, There was one time he climbed up in the windowsill. uh, Yikes. I think the first time that I witnessed this type of behavior, I resorted to strategies that I had used, which was tell them to stop.
1: Stop was a word Olympia was used to saying. The school where she worked was one of the lowest rated in the state. She describes it as a high needs school
2: about 98% students were in poverty which means they qualified for free or reduced lunch. We also had students that were homeless and didn't always have stable housing and many of them had been in several different schools because of this which made learning a
1: challenge. But D D was especially challenging. And the school's initial approach Stop. Stop. Get, down. Get down. Don't flip the desk. The desk. That wasn't exactly working. Sometimes Dee's fits of anger would put the entire school into lockdown mode. It could take an hour or more to get things back to normal. No one in the school knew how to help Dee. Here's Olympia on the TED
2: stage. And though we didn't come up with a fail-safe solution, we did come up with a simple idea. That in order for kids like Dee to not only survive in school, but to thrive, we somehow had to figure out a way to not only teach them how to read and write, but also how to help them deal with and manage their own emotions. And in doing that, we were able to move our school from one of the lowest-performing schools in the state of Ohio with an F rating all the way up to a C in just a matter of a few years.
1: I have two kids, But you don't need to be a parent to want all children to thrive. And we need today's kids to grow up into adults who can cope with the challenges of our fractured and frenetic world and find solutions to the big problems they'll be inheriting from us. But kids these days, they still go to school to learn to read, do math. Now, though, they're also grappling with how to face issues like inequality and racism head-on. They're put into fierce competition with each other, and they're under intense pressure to manage themselves emotionally and academically. So today on the show, we're asking, what do students need to learn to prepare them for the future? And how can we teach for better humans? So let's back up to Olympia Della Flora and the idea that turned her school and her student Dee completely around. We told you what Dee was like at school. Well, at home, he had a whole different set of challenges.
2: You know, it was his mother and him and his younger brother. And she was really doing the best that she knew how. I mean, she was a working mom and she worked very long hours. So I'm pretty sure she was, you know, tired by the time she got home. So he did pick up a lot of responsibility with his younger brother, meaning playing with him and probably helping him with his homework and those types of things that you typically would think adults would be
1: doing. But Dee, of course, wasn't an adult. He wasn't even a teenager. Dee was six years old.
2: Yeah, he was six. And he was so little. I know. He was a very mature six. And I think this is another challenge that we have with teachers now is, you know, we look at a kid and we assume that they are a kid and that they have kid responsibilities, but many of our kids now have pretty big adult responsibilities outside of school, hmm. and school is really the only place they can unwind and be a kid, but in many schools, we still are not really allowing them to do that. So, here's what I learned about D. First, we had to figure out where he was struggling the most. And like most young kids, arrival at school can be a tough transition time as they're moving from a less structured home environment to a more structured school environment. So what we did for Dee was we created a calming area for him in our timeout room, which we had equipped with rocking chairs and soft cushions and books. And we allowed Dee to go to this place in the morning away from the other kids, allowing him time to transition back into the school environment on his own terms.
1: Transitioning, I have to say, when I became a parent, I was like, what is this thing that everybody's talking about, how he's, he struggles with transitions? I was like, what's transitions?
2: Yeah, I think this is so imperative, not just for kids in poverty, more imperative for kids in poverty, but for all kids. And so there was a lot of um, conversation and experience that we did with the teachers. We went out into the neighborhoods. We had staff meetings in some of the local businesses or the churches, and we would walk to that location as a staff. And then we would say, like, how did you feel about walking through this neighborhood? You know, hmm. and they're like, oh, I was really scared. Or, you know, there there's really tall grass. They don't even cut the grass. I said, so imagine if you are – a five- or a six-year-old that has to walk to school through this every single day. How are they feeling by the time that they get to us?
1: And so, aside from those transition rooms, Olympia School did other things to take into account what was going on for students at home and help their kids be kids. For instance, in class, instead of telling them to say, stop fidgeting, teachers gave kids a way to do just that
2: what people call fidgets,
1: but they're basically
2: just little things you can hold in your hand, but they look like toys. It could be a ball, or it could be something you can hold in your hand and fidget with.
1: That was on top of the
2: desk. Underneath? We had these like little elliptical machines that go under the desk. Um, They're quiet, they don't make noise, but kids can move their legs while they're sitting um, at their desk. They could be reading a book, but they could be pedaling.
1: The school also experimented with playing soft classical music during class.
2: We also had a lot of discussion like, can the kids concentrate if there's music? But it kind of just calmed the air and um, helped kids be able to adjust so that they would be able to retain and learn new information. And here's the magical thing it didn't cost us a whole lot of extra money. We simply thought differently about what we had. As part of our personal professional development plan, we studied the research of Dr. Bruce Perry and his research on the effects of different childhood experiences on the developing child's brain. And what we learned was that some of our students' experiences, such as an absent parent, chaotic home life, poverty, and illness create real trauma on developing brains. Yes, trauma. And those difficult home experiences created real barbed wire barriers to learning, and we had to figure out a way over it. So our teachers continued to practice with lesson plans, doing shorter lesson plans with a single focus, allowing kids to engage and continue to incorporate these movement breaks, allowing kids to jump up and down in class and dance for two minutes straight, because we learned that taking breaks helps the learner retain new information. I saw teachers say, what happened to you instead of what's wrong with you? Or how can I help you instead of get out?
1: And I wonder if some of the methods that you are using in your school um, are actually becoming um, common practice. What I've seen like in my kids' school, for example, is my daughter came home and was like, we had yoga in class today. Mm -hmm. That would Mm -hmm. never have happened when I was (laughs) growing up in the 80s. Yeah,
2: I think um, schools across the world It's not just in the United States. Uh, I was in China last summer. They're experiencing some of the same issues that we're seeing here in the United States. And I think that we just have to reframe our vision and our thought of teaching to be more holistic. And, for example, you even see in the workplace now people are coming up with meditation rooms and quiet yeah. rooms. And I was just um, – privy to another business that actually put in like a um, punching bag so if you'd rather go in and like punch (laughs) it out you have the option to do that or the exercise bikes you see people are putting in workout facilities in their places of business because they recognize that people being able to relieve stress in a healthy way is going to benefit their organization it's going to benefit the culture and the climate Uh, So you'll see several states have actually come out with um, social emotional learning standards uh, to help kids and to help teachers know, you know, what skills they can help develop. I'm happy to say that when D got to fourth grade, he rarely got into trouble. He became a leader in the school and this behavior became contagious with other students. And we saw and felt our school climate continue to improve, making it a happy and safe place not only for children but for adults despite any outside influence fast forward to today i now work with an alternative education program with high school students who struggle to function in traditional high school setting many of them exhibit the same behaviors that i saw in 6-year-old d so i can't help but wonder if these kids would have learned healthy coping strategies early on when times get tough would they now be able to survive in a regular high school? I can't say for sure, but I have to tell you I believe that it would have helped. And it's time for all of us to take the social and emotional development of our kids seriously. The time is now for us to invest in our kids. They are our future citizens, not just numbers that can or cannot pass a test.
1: Thank you. Olympia Della Flora. She's now an associate superintendent for school development in Stamford, Connecticut. You can see her entire talk about her work in Columbus, Ohio at TED.com. We'll be right back with more ideas about teaching for better humans. I'm Manoush Zamarodi, in for Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR.
0: Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Trader Joe's, whose podcast Inside Trader Joe's takes you on a journey through world cuisines, innovative takes on frozen foods, fresh approaches to plants and flowers, new ways to think about produce, and everything you ever wanted to know about wine and cheese. And then some. You'll find new, innovative, astonishing, and fascinating episodes of Inside Trader Joe's wherever you get your podcasts. More at TraderJoe's.com and at Trader Joe's on Instagram. Thanks also to Mitsubishi Motors. Director of Product Planning Nate Berg was part of the team that developed a plug-in electric hybrid SUV, the Outlander PHEV. So our goal when we developed the Outlander PHEV was to make a unique vehicle, to give an electrified plug-in hybrid SUV with all of the features that people would expect in a SUV vehicle, but combine that with a electrified drivetrain in the PHEV system. To learn more, go to mitsubishicars.com.
3: What happens when Ronald McDonald walks into a poor immigrant neighborhood in the south of France and sets off a super-sized revolution? The story of how a company slogan to sell more shakes and burgers became a rallying cry for workers in France. That's on NPR's Rough Translation.
1: It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Manoush Zamarodi, in for Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about how we can teach for better humans. So school is where kids still learn spelling and times tables, but these days it's also where they have their first conversations about big topics that even we grown-ups struggle with. Topics like inequality
4: and race. I mean, think about how much media and how many messages adults soak up every single day. And kids are exposed to the exact same stuff that adults are exposed to. This is teacher Liz Kleinrock. She develops school curricula, before that, she spent a decade in the classroom. Yet we have this misconception that kids tune it out or don't care or kind of glass over when you know we have those conversations at the dinner table or when like the radio's on in the car. Like, mm-mm, kids pick up on all of that.
1: Some of Liz's students were interviewed for a mini-documentary specifically about how she helps them think critically about our history and how it relates to today.
3: Some people actually liked having slaves, to own slaves, because they worked for them. And some people were just afraid to speak out for them or do anything
4: to help them. I can't imagine how it would be like if my family was gone, like, if if you just separated from your family, like, just, you're separated. I have these kids who would never raise their hand in, like, a traditional reading or writing or math lesson, but if you ask them about Black Lives Matter or what's happening our government. They all know something and they all wanna share.
3: I mean, seeing all these videos of people getting discriminated because of their race, religion, orientation, it really changes my perspective of life.
4: I so I think it's actually a lot safer to have those conversations, you know, up front. But
1: having tough conversations up front with kids is totally different than having them with adults in lots of unpredictable and cringeworthy ways. Liz Kleinrock tells the story from the TED stage.
4: So a few years ago, I was beginning a new unit on race with my fourth graders. And I had the type of moment that every teacher has nightmares about. One of my students had just asked the question, why are some people racist? And another student, let's call her Abby, had just raised her hand and volunteered Maybe some people don't like black people because their skin is the color of poop. Yeah, no. So, as if on cue, my entire class exploded. Half of them immediately started laughing, and the other half started yelling at Abby and shouting things like, Oh my God, you can't say that, that's racist! So just take a second to freeze this scene in your mind. There's a class of nine and ten-year-olds, and half of them are in hysterics because they think Abby has said something wildly funny. And the other half are yelling at her for saying something offensive. And then you have Abby sitting there completely bewildered because in her mind she doesn't understand the weight of what she's said and why everybody is reacting this way. And then you have me, the teacher, standing there in the corner like about to have a panic attack. Now... Schools are often the only place where students can feel free and comfortable to ask questions and make mistakes, but unfortunately, not all students feel that sense of security. So as a classroom teacher, I have to make split-second decisions all the time. And I knew I needed to react, but how? Consider your fight-or-flight instincts. I could fight, or just change the subject and quickly start reaching for another subject, like anything to get my students' minds off the word poop. So after standing there for what felt like an eternity, I unfroze and I turned to face my class and I said, actually, Abby makes the point.
1: I loved being in your head as a teacher. Like, I kind of felt like, oh, maybe that's what my teachers were thinking. How do you take an extremely uncomfortable moment and in a split second decide what
4: to do with us? Like, what what were the options, did you think? I could chastise her and say like you know that's just incredibly inappropriate like you never ever say something like that which is definitely part of the conversation that needs to be had about why that language is harmful but if you don't explain why it's harmful it doesn't really do any good all the kid has learned is oh if I ever talk about this that it's bad Mm. and something I didn't share in the talk is that that student who made the comment isn't white she's actually a student of color Mm. Um, and I thought a lot in that moment about the way that i now interact with her is really also going to show be a model for the rest of the kids too. Mm-hmm. i definitely don't think it's okay to shame people for where they're at, but it's absolutely necessary to question why people are at a certain place. and if this was truly her first time talking about it, yelling at her was going to leave a really really big imprint. like i even think about how I view myself as a math student because I had one teacher in elementary school who, like, made me cry when it came to math because I didn't understand and how I then internalized, well, I must be a really bad math student. And this has a lot higher stakes than whether or not I could understand, like, in multiplication algorithm. You know, this is something that could really continue to follow her and determine whether she was going to be willing to engage or disengage from these conversations moving forward. Hmm. So in that five seconds...
1: The weight of this girl's relationship to talking about race is on your shoulders. You reflect on that. And then you look at the kids in your classroom and you look
4: at her and what do you say? And this is a really important teachable moment because there is some truth and validity into what Abby is saying that people have believed this and some components of racism are fueled by thoughts and beliefs just like this. And that's why we have to talk about it. It's meaningful, it's, you know, terrifying and deeply personal, but we have to take these opportunities to learn. As I watched the conversation really marinate with my students, I began to wonder how many of my students have assumptions just like Abby, and what happens when those assumptions go unnoticed and unaddressed as they so often do. Conversations around race, for example, have their own specific language, and students need to be fluent in this language in order to have these conversations. Now, I also know that these types of conversations can seem really, really intimidating with our students, especially with young learners. But I have taught first through fifth grades, and I can tell you, for example, that I'm not going to walk into a first-grade classroom and start talking about things like mass incarceration. But even a six-year-old first grader can understand the difference between what is fair, people getting what they need, and equal, when everybody gets the same thing especially goodie bags at birthday parties. Now, first graders can also understand the difference between a punishment and a consequence. And all of these things are foundational concepts that anyone needs to understand before having a conversation about mass incarceration in the United States. Some people might think that kindergartners or first graders are too young to have conversations around racism but also tell you that young kids understand how people are similar and different and what it means to have power when other people don't. When we have these conversations with students at a young age, it actually takes away some of that taboo feeling when those topics come up at a later age.
1: It's almost like you just make space in your classroom for things that are often shoved under the rugs, things that we don't make space for because it makes us feel uncomfortable because we don't necessarily have the answer of how to make it better. But you you try to make space.
4: I try, and I try to also be very authentic with my students when they ask a question that I don't know the answer to, to be very honest with them and not make something up. Or that I'm the authority on all things related to race and equity because I'm not. There's still so many things I'm unlearning and new things that I need to understand because it's hard to navigate by yourself. And I think there's a lot of self-work that teachers need to be doing and unpacking their own identities and their understanding of what it means to have an anti-racist classroom. And Mm. if you're not doing that self-work, having the conversations with kids is going to be a lot harder because these are definitely parallel tracks of work that need to be going on at the same time.
1: I mean, I got to say, I feel for teachers right now. Not only are they pretty poorly paid, at least here in the United States, but they don't get a lot of respect from parents, from municipal governments. They work so hard. How do you even begin to say to teachers, yeah, so also you need to be exploring your own sense of identity. Um, Could you do that, please, while you're also grading all the papers for tomorrow? Like,
4: how do you even start to have this conversation with other teachers? It's really, really hard. But I think that the curriculum and the lessons that I've created really try to embrace diversity and equity and inclusion as a lens, not as a separate component of the day. Like I'm not writing social justice time from nine to 10 o'clock on the agenda. (laughs) It can really be something as simple as who are the authors and the stories and the voices that you're amplifying in class. Like an example that I like to give is one of our curricular units is supposed to be about opinion writing. And the sample unit that comes with the curriculum, um, you're supposed to structure this lesson about what's your favorite ice cream flavor and why. Which for fourth graders, to me, that just seems like such a waste of an opportunity to have them write about something that's more important than that. But I think it also takes a lot for adults to be brave and have those conversations.
1: Well, yeah, which makes me wonder, like, do you ever get pushback from parents who... Maybe feel uncomfortable with your methods or maybe like, listen, just stick to like reading, writing and arithmetic, Okay, Uh, I'll handle the other stuff for my kid.
4: Yeah, I mean, I get a lot about education not being politicized. um, And my response to them is usually education is inherently political. School funding, how much teachers get paid, which textbooks we use, which holidays we celebrate, like who is visible in the classroom and who isn't. Those are all political decisions.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's really like you said before that kids already pick up on all of these ideas, political or not.
4: Yep, mean, you know, I had one student who said that we have the right to have these conversations because it's gonna be us, it's gonna be our life in the future. You know, how can we be prepared if we can't even have these conversations or we don't even know what's going on? And he's right, he's absolutely right. And that wasn't like an 18 year old. No, nah, he nine. <laughs> that's
1: liz kleinrock she's an educator and diversity coordinator in los angeles and that documentary about how she teaches is called ms liz's allies and you can see her full talk at ted.com So as we heard earlier from Olympia and Liz, sometimes a teacher's ability to create a customized approach is the best way to help a child thrive at school. But ultimately, that teacher will need to prove to their school district, their state, and the whole country they're actually getting results.
0: Tis the season for standardized testing, and,
1: and how do we measure those results? Standardized tests, standardized testing, standardized exams, testing. Of course, pass and you move on to the next grade. Fail and you still have some work to do. In 2015, by the time the typical high school senior graduated, they would have taken 112 standardized tests. FC
3: Ready Test. Delaware Comprehensive Assessment. FSA Language Arts. Louisiana Education. And of course, you know, testing, getting a score, getting a metric, getting a grade is a very useful way to organize, right? To, to set students from the best to the worst and everywhere in between.
1: That's Thomas Curran. He's a social psychologist who researches young people and perfectionism in the UK, US and Canada.
3: And you begin you can begin to see how that creates a um, reliance therefore on objective outcomes, on outcomes in tests and scores, and you can extend that to sport and other areas of young people's lives where ranking and categorization are now rife.
1: Thomas says tests, sports, social media, and a winner-takes-all culture puts a lot of pressure on kids to constantly compare themselves to others.
3: And so once people start to define themselves in those terms, and we're only really interested in how we do relative to others then we're going to set high standards for ourselves because the only way in which we're able to succeed in this society is to achieve high scores, high grades, high performances. The consequences of not doing that is not only do we fall back in school, but that has implications for our college, which has implications for our future market price in the job market. So you can begin to see how we're teaching kids at almost every level that they need to succeed, that they need to do well. And that's one of the reasons why we think young people are beginning to internalize perfectionistic tendencies.
1: Perfectionistic tendencies. Thomas says all of this has made young people more and more anxious. They want to be perfect. And wanting to be perfect is not only impossible, it can be dangerous. Thomas Curran continues this idea on the TED stage.
3: It's quite remarkable how many of us are quite happy to hold our hands up and say we're perfectionists. But... There's an interesting and serious point because our begrudging admiration for perfection is so pervasive that we never really stop to question that concept in its own terms. We know from clinician case reports that perfectionism conceals a host of psychological difficulties including things like depression, anxiety, anorexia, bulimia and even suicide ideation. And what's more worrying is that Over the last 25 years, we have seen perfectionism rise at an alarming rate. Suicide in the U.S. alone increased by 25% across the last two decades, and we're beginning to see similar trends emerge across Canada and in my home country, the United Kingdom. In uh, my uh, role as mentor to many young people, I see these lived effects of perfectionism firsthand. And one student sticks out in my mind very vividly. John, not his real name, was ambitious, hardworking and diligent, and on the surface, he was exceptionally high-achieving, often gaining first-class grades for his work. Yet, No matter how well John achieved, he always seemed to recast his successes as abject failures, and in meetings with me, he would talk openly about how he'd let himself and others down. John's justification was, was quite simple. How could he be a success when he was trying so much harder than other people just to attain the same outcomes? You see, John's perfectionism, his unrelenting work ethic was only serving to expose what he saw as his inner weakness to himself and to others.
1: You know, it's interesting. When I was growing up... It was cool to be a slacker, but now I meet college students, people in their 20s all the time who are even starting their second or third business. I kind of think of it as the Mark Zuckerberg effect, this idea that inside of you is an entrepreneur who can just kill it. Zuckerberg and Musk, I mean, they seem like perfectionists, and that seems to be something really worth pursuing.
3: That's a really good analysis, Amineesh, because... We live in quite an individualistic culture and world where essentially we're the masters of our own destiny, okay? It used to be the case that, particularly in the UK, but also also in the US just after the war, where there was a kind of collective sense that, you know, together Mm. we can prosper, right? That's very different today, where the successes and failures are owned by ourselves and how wealthy we are or how much material advantage we have is down to ourselves, and that's why you start to see uh, a lot of a lot of the young people engage in more entrepreneurial tendencies, because, frankly, they have to. If they don't, there is no job with prospects or future that they can just walk into from college. It's a postgraduate degree and then it's internships and then it's extra little bits and pieces on a CV that we can pick up. And, and this, is, this, this is what I mean about pressures and expectations on young people have risen so much that it's understandable that they begin to engage in these behaviors and worry about the consequences because whereas before there was a safety net now there isn't and so there's there's a hell of a lot of pressure to succeed and that fear of failure we think is something that is going on underneath this rise in perfectionism
1: coming up we hear more from thomas curran on perfectionism and embracing our imperfect selves On the show today, teaching for better humans. I'm Manoush Zomorodi, in for Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR.
0: Hey, everyone, just a quick thanks to our sponsor, the Financial Times. In a world of innovation and fragmentation, the FT not only helps you to thrive in business, it looks at topics such as whether Silicon Valley is falling short on climate change and whether the U.S., EU or China will be writing the new rules of tech. The world is changing fast. The Financial Times wants you to keep up with the new agenda. Visit FT.com to learn more. Malcolm Gladwell is one of the most well-known thinkers in the world. But he says a lot of his fans don't know that he's black.
4: White people don't know, black people always know. How do you feel about
0: that? I find a (laughs) player. Malcolm Gladwell on race, pop culture, and a whole lot more next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR.
1: It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Anoush Zamarodi in for Guy Raz. On today's show, how we can teach for better humans. And we were just hearing from social psychologist Thomas Curran about perfectionism, how young people are taught, pressured, and influenced to try and be perfect. And I'm just going to say what everyone is thinking right now. I mean, social media, right? That must be playing a huge role here.
3: I mean, social media is pervasive, particularly visual media, forms of social media, things like Instagram and Snapchat, for instance, uh, are very, very laden with images of the perfect life, images of the perfect lifestyle that, of course, young people internalise, try to recreate, try to live up to, and that's social perfectionism, social prescribed perfectionism, which is a sense that the external environment or others in the external environment expect us to be perfect. In 1989, just 9% of young people report clinically relevant levels of socially prescribed perfectionism. By 2017, that figure had doubled to 18%. And by 2050, projections based on the models that we tested indicate that almost one in three young people will report clinically relevant levels of socially prescribed perfectionism. This is the element of perfectionism that has a large correlation with serious mental illness, and that's for good reason. Socially prescribed perfectionists feel a unrelenting need to meet the expectations of other people. And even if they do meet yesterday's expectation of perfection, they then raise the bar on themselves to an even higher degree because these folks believe that the better they do, the better that they're expected to do. This breeds a profound sense of helplessness and, and worse, hopelessness.
1: You know, listening to you makes me feel, as a parent, kind of hopeless. It's really hard to know how to help your child.
3: I have to have a lot of uh, sympathy with parents because it's so tough. Like it's so so tough to not engage in over monitoring, over surveillance. Because essentially, you know, in this in this culture, if 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 our kids fail it's not just their failure, it's our failure too. And right. and so so parents do, do take on their kids' successes and failures and that naturally leads to um, more controlling forms of parenting, and and there's a lot of data to to support that that is on the rise. That said, there are ways in which you can do that that don't necessarily emphasize uh, perfectionistic tendencies.
1: Okay, so I want to hear them. What do you think parents should do?
3: Try not to focus on the outcome so when kids have done a test or they've got a metric or a score it's important really to as much as you can downplay that score particularly where in terms of where it sits relative to others and ask your kids more about well what did you learn right and then the second one just just quickly i think is is how we deal with failure not being afraid to fail is really really important uh and and in particular making sure that when we do encounter setbacks that we're uh, compassionate on ourselves. How would you talk to a friend, for instance, who came with the same issues? You'd rationalise with them, you'd empathise with them, you'd, you'd essentially try to show them that, you know, it's not the end of the world, but we don't apply the same rules to ourselves. And so talking to kids in those terms you know how would you treat other people if they if they came in at home with that grade would you mm. you know you'd be very different to your friends as you would be to yourself so it it's really self compassionate i think um is is really really important and teaching them that there is there is so much joy in failure and there's so much joy in imperfection. You know, we're not we're not built to be perfect. If we were we'd all be robots. I,
1: I wonder how much you think vulnerability and and being able to laugh at ourselves matters in this conversation too.
3: Oh it's, it's huge, huge. Um everybody every one of us has some areas in our lives that uh, we feel we're not quite as good at or we we might uh, there might be specific triggers for us in some way shape or form and that actually almost celebrating imperfection and celebrating mistakes and setbacks because they are opportunities to learn and develop etc etc is, is a really really important lesson
1: Thomas Curran teaches at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Watch his full talk and check out his research on perfectionism at ted.npr.org. Okay, for the past hour or so, we've been hearing about the formal and informal ways that we teach and how we can reassure kids that it is okay to look beyond academics and to value more than good grades. And I want to end the show on a little personal note. My nine-year-old daughter. My daughter loves to read, but she's not quite as fast as some of the other kids in class. And she was feeling bummed out about her slow reading until the day that author Jacqueline Woodson visited her school. Oh, really? Yeah, and you talked about slow reading, and she came home and she said to me, it's fine it's just me (laughs) it's how I read and I love reading and it's fine and she just sort of skipped across the room and looked lighter the burden was lifted because you told her it was okay to be different So I want to thank you personally for giving her that
5: gift. Well, thank her for hearing me. That completely makes my day. It's it's
1: so... Jacqueline has written dozens of books for children and young adults, including award winners like Miracles Boys and Brown Girl Dreaming. And my daughter's story reminded Jacqueline of her own slow reading.
5: You know, my sister was brilliant. My brother was brilliant. They were off the chart to readers. And here I was coming along and they're like, okay, what's wrong with this Woodson? <laughs> um, why is she reading differently? Why is she struggling with reading? And I read slowly with my finger following beneath the words. I read the same passages over and over again and really just inhaled narrative in this way that it was part of all my senses. Mm. And I never saw it as a struggle. It was how I read. Yeah, But, you know, when you're a child and someone is saying, this isn't how one should do this, you begin to question because it's adults and it's, it's their gaze that's the mirror for you
1: at that age. Here's Jacqueline Woodson on the TED stage.
5: The deeper I went into my books... The more time I took with each sentence, the less I heard the noise of the outside world. And so, unlike my siblings who were racing through books, I read slowly, very, very slowly. I was that child with her finger running beneath the words until I was untaught to do this, told big kids don't use their fingers. In third grade, we were made to sit with our hands folded on our desk, unclasping them only to turn the pages, then returning them to that position. Our teacher wasn't being cruel. It was the 1970s, and her goal was to get us reading not just on grade level, but far above it. And we were always being pushed to read faster. But in the quiet of my apartment, outside of my teacher's gaze, I let my finger run beneath those words. With each rereading, I learned something new. Years later, I would learn of a writer named John Gardner, who referred to this as the fictive dream, or the dream of fiction. And I would realize that this was where I was inside that book, spending time with the characters and the world that the author had created and invited me into. As a child, I knew that stories were meant to be savored, that stories wanted to be slow, and that Some author had spent months, maybe years, writing them. And my job as the reader, especially as the reader who wanted to one day become a writer, was to respect that narrative.
1: Do you think, like, I mean, obviously you are in touch with a lot of teachers and you do work in schools. And um, is that something that you're seeing being taken on board, this idea of reading slowly, of savoring words, of not rushing kids? (sighs)
5: I wish I was seeing it more, but when my kids were in fourth grade, their fourth grade test scores determined where they go to middle school. Their seventh grade test scores determined where they mm. go to high school. And and even now with um, the specialized schools and all the work we have to do around that, kids are yeah. stressed out. And I think that it's hard for teachers who have this um, curriculum that they have to adhere to, to then say, well, you know what, go take an hour with that book. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that reading slowly needs to be expressed at home more. And and kids should know that at the end of the day, they can linger and they can relax somewhere. But I know a lot of those young people are reading slowly and probably getting flack for it. Um, And to just kind of show up and be a mirror and say, look, I read slowly too. Yeah. And I'm here. And there are going to be many, many people saying this is not the way and push through that. My finger beneath the words has led me to a life of writing books for people of all ages. Books meant to be read slowly, to be savored. My love for looking deeply and closely at the world, for putting my whole self into it, and by doing so, seeing the many, many many possibilities of a narrative turned out to be a gift. Because taking my sweet time taught me everything I needed to know about writing. And writing taught me everything I needed to know about creating worlds where people could be seen and heard where their experiences could be legitimized, and where my story, read or heard by another person, inspired something in them that became a connection between us, a conversation. And isn't that what this is all about? Finding a way at the end of the day to not feel alone in this world, and a way to feel like we've changed it before we leave? Sometimes we read to understand the future, Sometimes we read to understand the past. We read to get lost, to forget the hard times we're living in. And we read to remember those who came before us, who lived through something harder. I write for those same reasons. Before coming to Brooklyn, my family lived in Greenville, South Carolina, in a segregated neighborhood called Nickeltown. All of us there were the descendants of a people who had not been allowed to learn to read or write. Imagine that. The danger of understanding how letters form words. The danger of words themselves. The danger of illiterate people and their stories. As I began to connect the dots that connected the way I learned to write and the way I learned to read to an almost silenced people, I realized that my story was bigger and older and deeper than I would ever be. And because of that, it will continue. We come from a history as African-Americans of people who are not even allowed to read in this country, right? Right. And then there was a high rate of literacy because of that not being allowed to read. And then slowly, you know, people came to reading and were hungry for it, or we stole reading, right? We we read even under the threat of death, or we taught ourselves even under that threat. So it makes so much sense for me
1: to take the time. And presumably, The way that someone who comes from a very different history or background can empathize or imagine or connect Mm
3: -hmm. to
1: what you went through and what your ancestors have gone through is Mm -hmm. through story. And frankly, those books didn't really exist when I was growing up.
5: The books felt like the ones I write. Yeah. Yeah. And that's part of the reason I write them because they didn't exist when I was growing up either. Um, you know, I grew up in Bushwick and it was like where were the books about a black girl growing up in Bushwick and a, in the home of a single mom and whose you know best friend was Puerto Rican and who so who grew up speaking Spanish and English? like I wanted to tell those stories right I w- I was indignant like how dare the world not have my narrative in it
1: <laughs> i'm I'm impressed that you were indignant that you were that that who gave you that sense of like, Hello, you all need to hear my story, too.
5: I think I think what it was was my family saying you matter. Yeah. I mean, I came out, out of Jim Crow South, right? So I came from South Carolina to New York City. And so, so I think somewhere along all those lines, people were saying you matter. <laughs> and then to hear all your life that you matter and you're amazing and you're brilliant and you're beautiful. And then to not see that in the world it's like, wait a second. Like, I know my people weren't lying, right? So America must be lying. (laughs) So as technology continues to speed ahead, I continue to read slowly. Knowing that I am respecting the author's work and the story's lasting power. And I read slowly to drown out the noise and remember those who came before me who probably carried with them the history of a narrative, knew deeply that writing it down wasn't the only way they could hold on to it, knew they could sit on their porches or their stoops at the end of a long day and spin a slow tale for their children. They knew they could sing their stories through the thick heat of picking cotton and harvesting tobacco, knew they could preach their stories and sew them into quilts, Turn the most painful ones into something laughable, and through that laughter, exhale the history of a country that tried again and again and again to steal their bodies, their spirit, and their story. I read slowly to pay homage to my ancestors. Each time we read, write, or tell a story, we step inside their circle. And the power of story lives on.
1: Thank you. That's Jacqueline Woodson. She's a novelist, and she's also the National Ambassador for Young People's Literature. You can find her full talk at TED.com.
3: Up in the morning and out to school The teacher is teaching the golden rule American history and practical man. You study him hard and hoping to pass. Working your fingers right down to the bone. And the guy behind you won't leave you alone.
1: Thanks for listening to our show on teaching for better humans this week. If you want to find out more about who was on it, go to TED.npr.org. To see hundreds more TED Talks, check out TED.com or the TED app. And you can listen to this show anytime by subscribing to our podcast. Do it now on Apple Podcasts or however you get your podcasts. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkinpour, Neva Grant, Casey Herman, Rachel Faulkner, Diba Motasham, James De La Husi, and JC Howard, with help from Daniel Shukin, Brent Bachman, Katie Monteleone, and Emmanuel Johnson. Our intern is Kiara Brown. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Michelle Quint. If you want to let us know what you think about the show, please go to Apple Podcasts and write a review. Also, you can write directly to us at TEDRadioHour at NPR.org. And you can tweet us. It's at TEDRadioHour. And while you're there, let me know how I did. I'm on Twitter at Manoush, M-A-N-O-U-S-H-Z. You can also find me on my podcast, which is ZigZag, wherever you listen to podcasts, or at zigzagpod.com. I have had such a great experience doing this show. I'm Manoush Samarodi, in for Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.